series called Jesus, Lion, Man of Judah. And we're tracing the life and ministry of Jesus through all four gospels at the same time. We began it a couple years ago, then we took about a year off in 2015, and now we started back up again in it last Sunday. And so today, we're in Luke chapter 7. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 11, so you might want to turn there, and then maybe I'll just catch up to speed of what we're looking at in terms of Jesus' life. Jesus' life begins with the time of 30 years of simply preparation. He grows up a carpenter's son, likely becomes a carpenter himself, swinging a hammer for a living like his daddy Joe. And, and after a while, Jesus decides to start ministry full-time. And as he starts ministry, he begins, uh, based on God's call in his life, he begins uh, calling people to come and see who he is. And his initial call is, hey, come and see, come and see. Come check it out. And his ministry is attractional. And he builds relationships with all kinds of people. And about a year and a half to two years later, he actually calls his disciples, the 12 disciples, after knowing them for a couple years, he picks out the 12 who are going to really carry on his ministry. And after this come and see phase is this phase of follow me, where Jesus is in this midst of training people for ministry and saying, here's what it's like to really be a Christian. Follow me. And this morning... Uh, We pick it up last Sunday, we saw Jesus heal the servant of a centurion, a servant of a Roman official, simply by his word. He didn't even have to go see the guy. He just said, go home, he's going to be fine. And the man was healed. This morning, I think we see something even more powerful. Not only Jesus' power over sickness, but his power over death and his power of life itself. So if you got your Bible, look in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the text together, and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. And thanks for the encouragement that we received from your text this morning and from Jesus' life, from the fact that he cares deeply about us, that he sees us in our need, and that he intervenes. He he initiates to save us and to rescue us and uh, to work all things for our good. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me to convey that well today. And uh, to do so in a way that would uh, be in line with your word and with your heart. And that, Holy Spirit, you would use my words to, uh, to teach and to train and to change others. I pray you teach and, and change me even, too, as I speak. Uh, pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He'd take your word and other things and accuse us and tempt us. But instead, Holy Spirit, change us today and comfort us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, so soon after he had healed the centurion's servant, like we saw last Sunday, he went to a town called Nain. Nain was a small town, probably uh, 20, maybe 30 miles at the most, away from Capernaum uh, to the west. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Well, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, let's just take that a verse at a time and kind of unpack it and see what's going on here. Starting in verse 11, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As I said, Nain was probably about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, southeast of Nazareth. And his disciples here is likely referring to more than the 12, but all of his followers. And then there was a whole other crowd that came along too, because they had just heard him speak the Sermon on the Mount. And then they had seen him in Capernaum and saw that he had healed this centurion servant. And they're like, I'm going to see what else this guy's up to. And they follow him as he takes off for Nain. A good, a good number of people would follow Jesus wherever he went. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. It says a man, but really I think we ought to understand this as a young man. A young man. In fact, some translations, New Living I know is one, actually says it as a young man who had died was being carried out. And the reason I say that is because of the, the sorrow we see in his mother, who's a widow, and he's likely young, my guess, and this is a guess, okay? But my guess is this guy is probably maybe junior high, high school age. He's a young guy and he's dead. In fact, he was being carried out. There, this was a funeral procession. Jesus is on his way to Nain with a big crowd of his own followers. And as he's coming into town, he noticed everybody's pulling over to the side of the road and turning their lights on because here comes a funeral procession. I mean, that, literally, that's the equivalent today, isn't it? Except it was different in that day. When a funeral procession happened in that day, what would happen is, obviously, they would walk and they would bury the dead outside of the city just because of uh, cleanliness issues and, and other ritual issues, ritual cleanness as well. And so as they let out, usually the family of the deceased would lead the way or at least be right by the coffin, and usually it wasn't even necessarily a coffin. It was, in this case, a buyer, which is, just think of like a big stretcher, and he was kind of wrapped on the stretcher. And they're coming out, and as a funeral procession would go through town, the people in the funeral procession would be the family, the friends, the acquaintances. They would also hire professional mourners in that day who, who would go in and would, in a sense, kind of lead the mourning as they're going. And so all of these types of people were probably part of this procession as they're coming out. And by the way, if you were in town, you wouldn't pull over and turn your lights on. You were actually in some ways required to join the procession. And if the funeral procession followed you, then you became part of it. And you went, even if you didn't know the people, you mourned with them because of the loss of the life and their family. Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus is coming in and the funeral procession is coming out, but... Before we get to how Jesus reacts, look at some of the notes that Luke gives us about what's happening here. It was a young man who had died, the only son of his mother. Hmm. This was her only son. I wonder, did she have others and they had passed? Did she just couldn't have any other children? This was her one and only son. And now he was gone. He was gone. Imagine the heartache that she would have felt. Some of you, sadly, have had to endure this. You've lost children. And you can empathize in a powerful way with this widow. Her only child. And he's gone. 
And if, if I'm right, if he's a young man, he's a teenager, he's in high school, he's at the beginning of, of all kinds of opportunity and excitement in his life. Maybe he's about to be married. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, fill in the blank. But now all the joy of that time of life is now replaced with sorrow. But not only this, she was also a widow. She hadn't just lost her son. She had also previously at some point lost her husband. And what happens is when you lose your husband in that day, hopefully you have a son or some family because then they step in and take care of you. And they step in and and provide for you. And now suddenly, think of, think of the sorrow that would have been with this woman. Usually, I mean, it's not like in our day where after, a, after someone dies, you know, there's a few days maybe before the funeral. This would have been pretty quickly, probably within a day or so after, the, after he had died. And, and they're going through the funeral and, and how everything had changed for her in the last 24 hours. She'd already had sorrow losing her husband at some point in the past, and now she lost her son. And you know what else she lost? She lost all provision. She lost all standing in her community. It, it would be likely, mentioning that she's a widow is likely the fact that she's going to be unable then to marry again. She's probably past the age of marrying again and bearing more children. This was her only son. And, and so it's likely then at some point in the future, she would have been caught in the horrible place of even having to beg for money or for food. And she would have been in a spot where she would be taken advantage of by people because she was alone. These things all still happen today, don't they? When someone's a widow and some of you are, you're in this spot and my heart breaks for you. And you find yourself vulnerable, you find yourself alone. Thankfully, many of you have families that care for you. You need to know you have a church that loves you and cares for you. And for all of us who we haven't found ourselves in that spot yet, because we may, remember what Jesus' little brother James says. He said that true religion is this, that, that is undefiled before God the Father, is this to visit orphan and wid- orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And Jesus models it for us here. He meets her at the biggest part of her distress, doesn't he? Right in the funeral procession. And there was a considerable crowd from the town with her. Well, we've already talked about who would have been in that crowd, but think of the differences between these two crowds coming together. There's the crowd with Jesus who's all excited about what's Jesus going to do next? And then all of a sudden here comes a funeral procession and mourners. And now the mood changes quickly. Look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. First thing I want you to see from the passage this morning is that whatever your need is, this woman's was pretty pronounced. And we could spend all kinds of time going into more and more details of what life would have been like for her as a widow and without a child to care for, without family. But you need to know this. Number one, Jesus sees your need. Jesus sees your need. I know many of your names, but I don't know all of your needs. I don't know everything that's going on in your life this week. 
or this month. It's impossible for me to know. It's impossible for everyone else to know. But you need to know Jesus sees it and he knows. He sees it. When he saw the woman coming in the funeral procession, he immediately identified who she was and he knew her need. He knew her need. Look at that. When the Lord saw her, she was likely in the front of the procession, in front of or near her dead son. And Jesus noticed. Now, was Jesus out, you know, looking for a funeral procession to go find her need and and help her? No. Jesus was just going about about life on this earth. He was, he was on a mission to go. He had planned to go to Nain to preach the gospel, to do whatever he needed to do there. This, in a sense, this very much was an interruption to his plans. If you think about it, humanly speaking, isn't it? And yet he sees her, he notices her. You need to know, because some people we feel like this, well, yeah, God may see my need, but I don't know, does he really? Maybe he, He's got so many other things to care about than what I'm going through. I mean, really, what I'm going through is such a small thing compared to who he is and compared to what he has going. No, it's not true. God is never too busy to notice what's going on in your life. He's not. He's absolutely not. He knows it inside and out. In fact, Psalm 40, verse 17, the psalmist writes this, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. He thinks about you. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Psalm 40, verse 17. Well, then it says he had compassion on her and said to her, Now think about what Jesus saw. Jesus sees her, and then not only does he see it, but he has compassion He has compassion. When you see other people's needs, do you have compassion? I hope you do. I think most of us do, don't you? When you see somebody in need, you generally have compassion for them. You you feel for them. You, you, You want to do something, but sadly, sometimes we don't always act on our compassion. We just feel it, and then we keep going. You know, as a church, we say it all the time, and it's on the sign, and it's on about everything we send out. You are loved. And I really hope that as a church, people know that you're loved. And people in our community know they're loved by our church. But you know how it's only going to happen? As if, as if we take some initiative and act on some of that compassion and act on some of those things towards people as we see their need. See, Jesus had compassion, and the thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus cares about your need. He cares deeply about you. He didn't just see your need, but he had compassion. He cared about it. He didn't just push it aside and go, oh, that's a bummer. No, he he deeply felt for this woman. And the other... The third thing, and I'll go through all these points quickly, and then we'll come back and kind of talk through the text maybe a little bit easier. But the third thing I want you to see right here in verse 13 is that not only does Jesus care and have compassion, but then he initiates. See, he saw her. He sees your need. He had compassion. He cares about your need. And then he said to her. So many other places in scripture, you know what happens? Jesus is going about business and, and people come to him and they come to him and they grab his garments and they say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, do this for me. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come to my house? 
Not in this case. In this case, nobody says anything to Jesus. He simply initiates. He feels compassion and then he does something about it. He takes the initiative. And he does it ultimately for us as well, for our good. But with those three things in mind, that he sees our need, that he, has, he cares deeply about us, and he initiates for our good, let's keep working through the text here and just think through the ways that Jesus does this. So he has compassion, and then he initiates. He, he stepped out and went to her. I, I just wonder, again, putting myself back in the spot of this woman, how stuck she must have felt. Her husband was gone. Her only son was gone. Means of provision were gone. She's weeping. She had, I mean, sure, everybody's following her mourning now, but what about a week from now? What about two weeks from now, a month from now, when everybody else goes back to regular life? Where will she be? It's great they care right now, and she's thankful they care right now, but I wonder if she's worried about two months from now or six months from now. What's going to happen then? And maybe she feels stuck and... She might get to the point where she's depressed. Do you ever feel stuck? Do you ever get to that spot like this widow? If you don't, you're blessed because I think most of us have and do get to these spots. But again, you need to remember Jesus cares deeply. He sees your need and he cares about it. In fact, in Matthew, he says, do you know that your father knows your need before you even ask it of him? He knows what's going on in your life. And he still does this by his grace today. He did this for the widow and he does it for us. Sometimes we plead with God through prayer and we beg him to do something and to act. And and that's a good thing and we ought to. But there's other times where sometimes he just takes initiative on his own. And he acts in your behalf, on your behalf, for your good before you even... Or maybe you're just stuck and you don't know what to pray anymore. And you need to know God cares and that he acts on your behalf. Some of those random coincidences where something just happens to work out. And you get just what you need at just the right time. And nobody even knew about it. God did. Because he saw your need and he cares about it and he initiates on your behalf. Just like Jesus did for this widow. Those aren't coincidences. That's not random. That's God's grace to you when those things happen. And in fact, the ultimate demonstration of his grace is Paul says in Romans chapter five, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. He initiated to save you. Your salvation is an act of Jesus, not your own. You simply respond in faith. And so I would encourage you when you see those things in your life and you see God's grace to you, respond in faith and respond encouraged by the fact that Jesus saw your need. He cared And he initiated on your behalf. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Um, When my dad passed away last year and and seeing him suffer with cancer and watching my mom and and now seeing my mom alone in a small town, long ways away, no family nearby. this, This passage really cuts to my heart a little bit thinking of her. But one of the passages that was a great encouragement to me, you might write this down and maybe I don't know what you're going through, but it might be an encouragement to you, is Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name in your mind. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. 
and through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. And in a sense, that's what Jesus says to this woman. He sees her need, he has compassion, and he says, do not weep. Do not weep. And I wonder if when he said it, if he was himself weeping and in tears with a hand on her shoulder. You know, I think about that if I was at a funeral and we got to the end and we'd gone through the procession and we're at the graveside and they're bringing the casket up and I leaned to the family and I said to those who are hurting and I said, hey, don't cry, don't cry. I better duck after I say that, right? I mean, that, can, I can't imagine saying that to somebody in that spot. Well, of course they should cry. But see, what we don't understand is, is Jesus here was about to do something incredible. He was about to reverse what had happened. He was about to take this thing that seems so horrible and so awful and work it for good in this woman's life. And he does the same for us. He does the same for us. He takes what's awful and he works it for good. But at the same time, I'm reminded, you know, when you think about, about grief, grief tends to come in waves, doesn't it? And for this woman, yeah, she was weeping at the time. And, and it seems, on a human scale, it seems ridiculous that Jesus would say, don't cry. Well, of course she should cry. Now, if I said that, I, I couldn't do like Jesus and raise somebody from the dead to make it, make it right. And so what I would say to you is when you find yourself in grief, be with that grief. You know, a friend of mine who's a pastor recently just told me this about, probably about two months ago. And it's just kind of stuck with me. And he didn't even know it was all that profound, but it really struck, to, struck me. He was asking how things were going, knew we were having a baby soon. And I just shared with him that, um, that yeah, we're excited. He asked how my mom was doing. I said, she's, you know, she's doing good, um, but obviously struggling. And just talked to him about how the, the grief from some of that for her and even for me still to this day just comes in waves. And, and those of you who've, who've experienced hard things and you, you suffer with enduring grief, would you agree with that? I mean, it just, it kind of comes in waves. And one of the things he said to me is, you know, grief tends to come, how do you say it? Grief isn't one of those things that we seek out. It's not like I sit around like the professional mourners in this passage who are probably there and I just, I'm going to grieve. Here I go. I don't seek it out. Usually grief seeks me out. And it usually seems to do it at the least opportune time. It hits you at a time where you're just like, really? Right now. Right now it's got to hit me, huh? Thanks. And, but he gave me some advice that I thought was, was helpful. And maybe it would be helpful for you. He, he said, you know, grief strikes at unopportune times. You don't seek it out. But, but when it seeks you out, just be with it. In other words, just be there and grieve. And go through it. And it's okay. Let it run its course. But then also in the moment, remember Jesus' words to this widow, don't weep. And he's not saying don't grieve. He's saying there's something better coming. It's going to be okay. I love you. I will work this for good. Trust me. But at the same time, you need to grieve. You need to go through those things. 
And as you do, though, remember Jesus' words and remember words of, of others in Scripture. Peter's saying to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares. He cares deeply, just like he did for this widow. The psalmist writes, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. And then one of my favorites in Psalm 34, 18, I think one of the most personal promises in all the Bible, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so when you grieve, be with your grief. But remember these promises. Remember Jesus saying, don't weep. And remember he's near to you when you're crushed in spirit. But also know again that he initiates on your behalf. See, look at what Jesus does to reverse these things. He came up, verse 14, and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. Now, this is a pretty profound statement if you're in that culture and in that context to understand what's going on. They're carrying the, the young man. He's dead. He's wrapped in burial cloths, and they're going out to bury him. And the reason he's on a buyer and nobody's actually touching him is because when you touch him, you'd become unclean. And you'd be required to stay away from the community. And, and everybody else, other than the people carrying it on the poles, nobody else was even touching the buyer that he's on. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes right up to it, and he touches the buyer. And I almost wonder if he laid his hand on the boy, even. And it's like, think about that. If we touch it, we become unclean. But Jesus, because of his cleanliness, because of his righteousness... That overcomes any uncleanliness and any uncleanness that would have come from that. His righteousness overpowers sin, and he's demonstrating that pretty clearly. And it says when he touched the buyer, what did the guys who were carrying it do? They stopped. And I wonder, they probably thought, dude, what are you doing? What is this guy doing? Really? Really? I mean, the equivalent today... Would be, would be like at a funeral of some sort or a, or a viewing and somebody who's not family, who's just a stranger comes up to the coffin and, and they would look in and maybe they would, they would touch the body of the deceased and you'd look at him like, what, what are you doing? I mean, family, that's normal to do that. But, but for somebody who's just a stranger, what's going on? That's the shocking nature of what's happening here when Jesus does this. And the bearer stood still, and then he said, Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Look at verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. How shocking would that be? First, like, dude, what are you doing? And then he says, rise, and then all of a sudden, the boy sits up and he starts, begins to speak. I, I think it's curious. Luke doesn't tell us what he said, just that he began to speak. Leaves it to our imagination. I wonder if it's just like, where am I? Why am I wrapped like a mummy? Get these things off. I mean, he was, he, was, he was totally normal. He began to speak. He was alive. And look at what everyone did. Fear seized them all. Well, Yeah. I mean, would you freak out? That'd be unbelievable. I mean, it, he, he was clearly dead. They had wrapped him up. They were going out to bury him. He wasn't, 
just kind of dead or most, he was totally dead. And now Jesus, this strange, this strange man walks up, touches the buyer and says, son, get up, get up. And he sits up and he starts talking and then he takes him and gives him to his mother. Surprised he didn't have a heart attack. That's incredible. And Jesus initiated all of it. He, he saw her need. He had compassion on her need. He cared deeply. And then he initiated to make it right. You need to know that Jesus sees your need. He cares about it deeply. And he initiates by his grace to work it out for your good in the end. That's what Romans 8 talks about. In, in Romans 8, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things means even the bad things. Eventually, somehow, in the end, God uses it for good. And I can't see it right now. I don't get it right now. It makes zero sense, but I trust him. I trust him. And he's initiating on my behalf. In that same passage, it talks about the spirit praying for us when we don't know what to say because of the depth with which God loves us and cares about our need. And you need to remember that. Well, fear seized them and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Well, a great prophet, they re- that was their way of saying God did this. <laughs> They maybe not, didn't know yet that Jesus was God, but they recognized what he did was definitely an act of God. That no other way could this have happened other than through God. And it likely for them recalled a very similar thing that would have happened. That a man, a prophet, a great prophet by the name of Elijah did. In 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 17, the beginning of the chapter, Elijah predicts a drought that's going to last many years. And then after that, God tells him, go live by this brook. I'm going to show you where to live. And when you get there, you can drink water from the brook and I'm going to have ravens bring you food. It's kind of cool. Every morning he got meat and bread from the ravens and he drank from the brook. And it says in chapter 17, every evening, Elijah got meat and bread from the ravens and then he drank from the brook. After a few days there, he tells him to get up and go into this other village called Zarephath. Verse 8 of chapter 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, boy, he's coming to the gate of a city, like Jesus was coming to the gate of a city. Behold, there was a widow. And she was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand too. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, this is all we have left and then we're going to die. And you want some of my bread. I'm a poor widow. You get that, right? And Elijah said, don't fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterwards, something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, God's going to provide for you until the drought's over. So don't worry. Trust me. Trust him. You know, this is, we could launch into another sermon here about giving, couldn't we? 
and how we need to give to the Lord what's his first, and he promises to provide all our needs, but I'll save that one for another day. But verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, anyway, she did that, and exactly what Elijah said happened. And sometime after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, he became ill. So we have a widow with a son. The son becomes ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So here we have another widow with an only son who's died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. The reason I go look at this passage is because of that verse. Because sometimes some of our needs that we see and some of the things happening that we grieve over or some of the things that are hard in our life, we look at it and we go, God, what what did I do that you did this to me? What, What sin did I commit that you made this happen? As if somehow we brought it on ourselves and somehow that this is a punishment from God that my relative died or my child got sick or I lost my job or I'm going through this fill in the blank. That somehow that's God's, he's punishing me because of something I did. And some of you believe that and you need to know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is not God's punishment on you. Now it may be his discipline It may be him trying to get your attention to turn back to him, but you need to know there's a difference between discipline and punishment, right? Punishment is punitive. Punishment says, pay me back for what you've done. You screwed up, now you're gonna pay the price. That's punishment. Jesus took our punishment on the cross. He's the propitiation for our sins. He took God's wrath. Discipline is restorative. Discipline says, you did that, you shouldn't do that. Now here's some consequence so that hopefully you would come back in line and it's because I love you. Parents, when you, when you parent your children, I hope you're parenting them with discipline, not punishment. Because punishment says, you owe me, you screwed up, I'm angry, repay it. Discipline says, you shouldn't do that, I love you. Let's correct it. And there can be a fine line between the two, especially sometimes when we're angry. But be sure we act in discipline, not in punishment. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, your punishment has been paid for. But God disciplines those whom he loves. Well, Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, why have you brought calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Jesus, after the son raised up from the dead and began to speak, took him and gave him to his mother. And they said, that's just like Elijah. This is a great prophet. It's a great prophet. Fear seized them all. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. As we close, I thought, let's just look at this up close for ourselves. And we can kind of look at it in two ways. We can look at it in the sense of looking out at other people and how we ought to live towards others. And we can look at it looking in of how we ought to take comfort for ourselves. So just quickly, let's look at these things. Looking out. 
Jesus sees your need. Let me ask you, whose need do you see? Whose need do you know about? Who comes to mind right now? What need that you know about comes to mind that needs met? Maybe God is planning to use you to meet that need. Jesus cares deeply about you. Who do you have compassion for? Who do you have compassion for? Maybe it's the same situation and and your heart begins to stir and to melt and you have compassion for that person or that family. But do you stay there or do you act like Jesus and initiate? How are you initiating then to help others? Are you waiting for them to come to you and say, hey, I need some help. Maybe they're ashamed to do that. Maybe they have no idea how to do that. Maybe they don't even think you care. Maybe you need to step out and initiate like Jesus did and take some action. Now looking in, some of you are in a spot where you feel like this widow. You're grieving, you're, you're hurting. Maybe clearly Jesus sees and knows your need, but have you let others know? Is there a need in your own life that you need to let some other people know about? Jesus has compassion and cares deeply about you. Where where do you need compassion? Where do you feel like nobody cares? You need to know that Jesus does. And he cares deeply and he knows. And then Jesus initiates for your good. And the question is, do you trust him to do that? You trust him to do that. Maybe you would go read Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34 this week, where Jesus tells you, don't be anxious about your life. The Father cares deeply for you. And he'll meet every one of your needs. Amen? Say, well, let me pray. We're going to take our offering. Or excuse me, we're going to take communion first before we do our offering. The elements will be passed out. Just hold on to them, and then we'll join together. But uh, let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, in studying a passage like this, it can um, stir up a lot of our own grief, a lot of our own hurts. But I pray that instead this morning it would stir up a great understanding of your compassion and your heart and your love and care for us. So that those who are are hurting, that uh, they would know your peace and know your comfort. Um, and that those who, who see those who are in need, who know you and know your grace, would be motivated to act and be like you, Jesus, and to reach out to others in your name. I pray for those who've never trusted you, that today might be the day that they'd recognize you've already acted on their behalf in grace, and that they'd trust you with their life for their salvation. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.